Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We were offering three separate conversations from last Sunday night's episode, what we learned at today's FDA webcast on Nash drug development. In this conversation, the panel discusses key takeaways on the subject of endpoints. The panelists, Stephen Harrison, Nal Abdul-Malik, Naeem Al-Khoury, Akira Therapeutics Chief Development Officer Kitty Yale, Louise Campbell, and I, focus on the significant portion of the webcast that addressed endpoint issues, including the emerging role of digital pathology, confirmation of the existing endpoint goalposts, and a clear statement on the importance of risk-benefit ratio. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. So I want to start on surrogate efficacy endpoints that have been acknowledged by FDA as reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And what I'm hoping is that somebody on the panel will take two or three minutes and summarize, maybe a little more if you need it, and summarize what you heard on that point that you find likely to be most relevant to the listeners of this podcast, doctors, KOLs, investors, execs. I think what I heard is that in preclinical NASH, the agency is willing to accept an improvement in liver histology, as they've already defined in the guidance, and that the liver biopsy is the surrogate based on the existing research and data that we have that demonstrates that an improvement predominantly in NASH as a predictor of fibrosis or fibrosis as a predictor of clinical outcomes, histology will be the predictor of improved outcomes in patients with NASH. What we didn't hear in is any other surrogate. We heard, or at least I heard, that in very early phase clinical trials, phase one or early phase two, maybe even to be that surrogates could be utilized as in case ascertainment, maybe in early markers of efficacy, but in preclinical NASH, that an improvement in histology ultimately is going to be what they will stand behind as in their guidance for an improvement in clinical outcomes in NASH. Hey, this is Stephen. So, so you're right, Manal. I, I do think there was some beating around the bush, if you will. And I, and I use that term because the agency was very careful in their wording. I heard lots of um, 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 ums as they were trying to choose the right words. Joe Turner, he's very cautious in his in his wording and phrasing of what's happening. Frank, a little bit more straightforward, but still they get a lot of questions. I think one of the comments Frank made was, we're getting hundreds of questions, many of those on the non-invasive testing parameters. And what they kept coming back to is we're scientists here, we analyze data, and based on data, we make decisions. And that applies to artificial intelligence. That comment was clearly made. And then the comment about utilization of other non-invasive tests. So what I heard was continue to collect data, continue to get data in early phase, late phase 2B, and in 3, so that the composition of all of that data, we can begin to synthesize, and you can begin to synthesize, and you can publish, and we can analyze, and hopefully we get to the point where we can use non-invasive tests as a surrogate. What I was hoping they would do, and I wrote the question and didn't get an answer to it, was what does that look like pragmatically. We're at a surrogate endpoint that's histopathology today. Is within a year, 
do we think we can have AI to supplement and augment semi-quantitative assessment of the NAS components and fibrosis and then transition to an AI endpoint and then look at NITs based off AI data and transitioned into NITs. That's what I really think is going to happen because trying to compare an NIT to a semi-quantitative assessment is ridiculous. And, and I think it's going to be much easier to do that with a fully quantitative assessment of all these parameters. But I didn't hear that. I heard what I've always heard, which is collect data, show us data, we'll analyze the data. But I really think we're the ones that are going to have to collect and analyze the data and show them the roadmap to how we get this done. And I think the more we show them that, there will finally begin to be consensus. I, I really think that's exactly what's happened with digital pathology. I mean, how many times have we brought that forward, brought it forward, brought it forward? Now we have data. We have data. We're, we're seeing pathologists come online with this. As more and more trials are coming online, that movement has reached a crescendo to where now they say, okay. And I think that's really the path forward on a lot of these individual pragmatic steps that, that will help us get to an NIT endpoint. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time. I think based on what I heard today, we're still years away from an NIT as a surrogate. I think the good thing about the endpoints was I, th there's been a lot of speculation whether the FDA are moving the goalposts and whether the guidances weren't going to be able to be utilized as written for histology endpoints. And so getting that clarity today that the endpoints will remain, the endpoint is helpful for the wider community because people were concerned that, that, that there was something that was maybe going to change there. So I think the clarification that that's not changed is helpful. But I think what becomes harder to, to fully interpret is this sort of comment about the risk-benefit profile. And, and I think that's going to be mechanism of action-specific compound by compound, where it's very clear that they're going to have to look at the overall approvability based on the risk-benefit profile. And even if you hit your endpoint, but they don't think maybe that the overall risk-benefit is an advantage to take forward because they're concerned about the large NASH population. And so I think that's the area where each company, each molecule is going to have to navigate through what would be acceptable. That makes sense to me. I mean, one of the comments I noted was that fundamentally the same safety profile might be acceptable in a drug with a greater benefit, but not in a drug with a lesser benefit, which I think was the end coda, to me at least, on on. Uh, butacolic acid that we've all been waiting to get some definition around or complete clarity around. I agree with what you say, Kitty. I think it is going to get navigated that drug by drug, but I do think that what they stated pretty clearly, at least as I heard you folks tell me, is more efficacious agents will have a wider berth on certainly side effect issues, if not major safety issues. That's exactly what I heard. And, and really, the summary for me is, is, is the view worth the climb? Is the juice worth the squeeze? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if you're hitting it out of the park on efficacy, willing to accept some adverse events or mild safety issues. On the other hand, if you're marginally effective and you come with some adverse events, 
that's going to be looked at with scrutiny. So that was a good pickup, Roger. Thanks for bringing that up. Thank you, Stephen. Anybody else have any, on the surrogacy and surrogate and efficacy endpoint, other issues, comments? The bar is getting higher and higher for NITs and, you know, biomarkers. 20 years ago, all you needed was a hypothesis and you have your biomarker, you have, you know, your disease cohort, you have your control and you show that there is a difference and you publish and that was, you know, your biomarker. And that led to many issues in including the fact that we have, you know, hundreds of biomarkers that are not, you know, utilized in clinic because they really don't stand the test of time. I think uh, we've had issues related to understanding also the effect of disease uh, prevalence on positive predictive value, negative predictive value. I think, you know, now you need to have your initial cohort, you need to do internal validation, external validation, multiple cohorts. It just, it, it got too complicated. I think this is good and it's good for science and we don't want to have more biomarkers that we never utilized in real life. But the bar is just higher now. And this is, you know, what's taking us so long. And then we have the issues with biopsy and you're comparing to an imperfect gold standard. One thing I noticed was that they encourage having two pathologists. And I can tell you from some of the trials that we're conducting that use two pathologists. If you have them read the slides separately and score the NAFLD activity score and, you know, give a grade for ballooning, inflammation, steatosis, and then the stage of fibrosis, and then have them compare that they only actually agree on all of these in about one third of the time. So the rest of the readings, they have to, to do it together and then come up with the consensus. So even having two pathologists is really not going to resolve the issues related to biopsy. The fact that even the same pathologist can read the same slide differently after a few weeks between the beginning of the trial and the end of the trial. It is, you know, disheartening for me that we still need the biopsy, but I agree that we don't have anything to replace biopsy today. You know, I, I think there's a I agree with both you and, and Stephen. I think Stephen's got good insight in the fact that the artificial intelligence platforms for the pathology are going to help us back into more sensitive nits uh, for performance. And on, on the same note, while it seems like the bar is higher, I'm not sure that it really is. And I don't know that the goalpost has shifted. I, I think the FDA has had its same stand. It's one thing to have a biomarker for case detection or case finding of a disease entity. And it's another thing to use such markers when balancing out risk-benefit ratios for therapeutics and looking at their performance over time. And what I heard resonate very clearly by the FDA is data. Show us the data. We're happy to to weigh the data. We want you to generate the data. We want you to, to show us how this is pertinent for the disease, the therapeutic target and its performance. And what I also heard is they're not going to dictate how or who we do this. They're not going to dictate who looks at pathology. They're not going to dictate how it's assessed. They're not going to tell us one pathologist, two pathologists, committee pathologists. They're, they're, they want to engage in dialogue. They want to see progress. But the reality is we are still in our infancy of still building data and trying to do it fast enough. And because I think of the, the risk-benefit ratio for a very large cohort of patients who are going to be receiving these therapeutics. We're not talking this is an orphan disease and an orphan drug. We're talking a very prevalent disease and potential large population-based safety and efficacy risk balance ratios, then I think there is some prudency being weighed. But, you know, speaking of data, Manal, I mean, I would like to see the data that shows that resolution of NASH 
leads to any improvement in outcomes. I mean, the FDA has no data. And where's the data that any therapeutic, if you improve fibrosis by one stage, that you improve outcome? It's not there yet. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're asking for data and they want to be scientific, but sometimes when they're pressed to make a decision and move forward with an approval path, they just take what they have. I think now they have histology and they're sticking by it. But I mean, you know, it's it's really not very clear cut. You know, what we have today is actually driven by real data. It's more like, well, we think on the initial biopsy that the fibrosis stage is the most important prognostic factor. So therefore, we think if you go from F3 to F2, it's going to be associated with the improved outcome. But we, we still don't have that data. I heard very similar to what everybody else heard there. The surrogate could be decided by the sponsor, but that the FDA welcomed the discussion as to what surrogate endpoints you were going to manage. And I think for me, risk-benefit ratio, I'd like to see what the threshold is. We know that the risk-benefit for having a liver biopsy and the difficulty that patients have with that and some of the outcomes of the liver biopsy and also failed liver biopsy. So I'd certainly like to see a threshold for the outcomes of trials to be certainly significantly better than the risk-benefit ratio of having a biopsy. So keeping NITs, keeping biomarkers in and strengthening the data that we're getting from them. I would like to see the sponsors discuss those heavily with the FDA. Louise or Kitty or anybody else, but this is a quote from the UK, which is why I'm inviting you. If I get this quote too dreadfully wrong, please correct me, but I think Churchill is reputed to have said something like democracy being the worst system there is except for all the others. Does that, does that kind of resonate? Without waiting for an answer, I'll go on and say that was what I thought these folks were saying about biopsy today. I don't think they showed any affection for it, but I think what they said was they don't have an answer they like better yet, which is why they keep asking for data because data is the place wherein a better answer is likely to come out. You know, I, I completely agree, Roger. I, I do think, though, even though they said they, they weren't going to tell us how to analyze it, I think maybe some of the feedback I've had recently has been pretty specific. So I think they are quite good at telling you what would not be acceptable. And they, they are guiding companies through what would be acceptable. We, we recently had to submit a biopsy analysis plan where we've really detailed out how we're going to analyze our histopathology. And they want to provide feedback before we actually start. I think they, they're also, they're not going to tell us exactly what to do, but they, they definitely want to be very involved and, and tell you what not to do. Sounds right. Sounds like sounds like the agency. Okay, so before we move on to the next topic, any other comments, questions, closing points anybody would like to make? I do have two other things that I think were worth discussion. One was the histopath adjudication process. And I like the fact that it was stated that they are not defining a particular way it has to be done. They're willing to listen to what makes sense. And I think that's that's actually a step forward. They they list in their in their white paper two or three pathologists. I don't personally like the three pathologist pathway. I'm more of a, a two pathologist guy where I would like to have the slides I would like for the two pathologists to come together, harmonize 
the readings, what they would call a stage three. Is it one bridge, multiple bridges? You know, how you define a classic uh, balloon to patocyte. What do you say is 1A versus 1B, 1C? And then they go and read independently. They come up with their own read between baseline and end of study. And where they agree, great. Where they disagree, they come together again. Again, this is the beauty of digital path. They can do that from the comfort of their own home, or if you're Pierre Badoza, from your sailboat in the Mediterranean. And and you uh, you adjudicate those differences, and whatever score you agree to is the one that you go with. And I haven't seen where that has been met with a negative reception. So there are multiple ways to skin the cat. I think we just need to get better at trying to adjudicate the issues with intra-observer variability and the placebo response rate, as Naeem mentioned earlier. And I think that door is open to several different options. So I think that's maybe worthy of a discussion as well. Stephen, I'm completely in agreement with you that I'm in favor of two pathologists, but the third just seems to me that it would introduce sort of more variability because you're going to have a third read. And so the the way I had kind of interpreted that was maybe the, the third person is basically purely an adjudicator. They have to actually side with one reader or the other, and they become the final vote. But I certainly don't think you want a, a third reader um, involved. It, it doesn't seem to be that that would be helpful in any regard. Yeah, I, that's the way I would interpret the third reader as well. And when you poll the proverbial pathology audience for that, they all to a person, at least to me, say, who made the third pathologist God? You know, at which point did the third pathologist have the command authority to overrule one versus the other? And that's why I fall back to just get them in the same room, look at it, talk it over, come to a consensus and and move forward. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode. We will also be releasing post-event interviews with our friends, Professor Jorn Schottenberg of the University of Mainz and Jen Fitt, Head of Global Diagnostics, Neil Haas-Main. Each covers different ground than we did in the podcast itself. I recommend both highly. We will release our next episode, Hashtag Real Talk on Clinical Trial Design and Execution, on Thursday, February 12th. I hope you will join us for the interviews with Jorn and Sunil, and then for the next episode as well. Stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.